0: Hello, I'm Arvind Hickman, and welcome to The Campaign Podcast. It's mid-December, Santa Claus has filled up his sled and is on his way, and we're almost at the end of what has been an epic year. We've had three Prime Ministers, a tragic war in Ukraine, the Women's Euros, a Men's World Cup, and a cost-of-living crisis to boot. Next year also looks like it could be a challenge with a recession on the horizon. But what's in store for Adland in 2023, and what are some of the trends the industry needs to be aware of? Wavemaker, Dentsu, and Accenture Song have released reports that highlight exciting future trends in media and advertising. And today we've assembled experts from each of these agencies to take a look into their crystal balls and share some of the trends that they think we should be aware of. Joining us today is Wavemaker UK Chief Strategy Officer Vera Budimlia. Hey Vera. Hi there. Um, Also joining us is Katie Burke, who's the Global Innovation and Thought Leadership Lead at Accenture Song. Hi, Katie.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: You're most welcome. And we also have Dentsu's Global Head of Media Futures, Dan Calladine. Hi, Dan. Hello. Right. Before we dive into future trends, it will be really useful to paint a picture of what 2023 looks like in the market. Now, Dan, this week, Dentsu released its annual global ad spend forecast. What were some of the key findings for the UK?
2: So what the report is saying is that um, ad spend is continuing to rise for the UK, but the growth is going to be more muted than we had expected in summer this year. We've had to revise our figures down from an earlier forecast we did um, in June. And what we expect is for the slower growth to continue into 2024 and potentially 2025 as well. But what we're also seeing is greater shift into digital channels. So things like retail media, which is essentially advertising on platforms like Amazon and Tesco and those sorts of places, Um, but also you know, things like search are continuing to grow, things like social are continuing to grow, really the channels where people can um, sort of really respond and buy things and and really sort of drive businesses forward.
0: You mentioned um, also that there's going to be sort of a shift more towards what we'd probably describe as performance channels.
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah. So um, I think as we enter the downturn, as we continue through the downturn, Businesses are increasingly looking to put their money into things which directly drive performance so that they can actually say, you know, if we spend this money here, this is expected to drive this many sales rather than um, the more brand building things, which I think, you know, may start to be seen as nice to haves next year rather than as essential as some of the performance channels.
0: I mean, that's, that's a really interesting observation. I guess it's probably not too dissimilar to what happened after the global financial crisis, isn't it?
2: Yes, I think it's the sort of thing that we we expect whenever we go into into times of recession. I mean, the global financial crisis, 2008, the iPhone had really only just come out. So the big shift to mobile hadn't happened at that point. But I remember in those times, people were still shifting to digital because with digital, you get a much clearer idea of how the media is performing, what's being delivered and things like that, rather than the more analog channels uh, like TV and print.
0: Mm, okay. Right. Thanks for that, Dan. Let's move on to future trends now. I'd like each of our panelists to discuss two. Vera, I want to start off with you. Wavemaker released its growth trends report, I think it was in November, right? Uh, take us through the two trends that really stuck out for you.
3: Yes, I will. But I might just just very quickly just give you a little bit of background about why we publish the growth trends every year. And you've probably heard me and others from Wavemaker talk about how we kind of build our business on the belief that growth models today won't really serve us. In the future, so we're constantly looking to kind of challenge clients and thinking about how we can kind of imagine a better way to grow for them. Um, and that's why looking at the near horizon, there's obviously we have to look at the far horizon too, but the near horizon in terms of how we're going to find growth next year is what really the growth trends are about. So, um, the way that we look at them is that we, we look at them through the, the lens of um, media, we look at it through the lens of Content, tech, and obviously people, and looking at insights. Uh, the one I'd like to kick off with is news nostalgia. Um, we know that there aren't that many reasons to be cheerful in 2023 for all the reasons that you've just mentioned, Darwin. Um But you know, with such an uncertain future, it comes no surprise that really audiences are and that's not audiences of a certain age, we're talking about all demographics, are looking for nostalgia, for kind of relief and comfort. And that's why Top Gun did so well over the summer. We were all glued to our sets for Stranger Things. Um, there's a whole raft of kind of Star Wars content that kind of continues to resonate. So we're kind of filling that void um, with a kind of much needed boost and reassurance that um, comes from that kind of content. But which is great, and it 's a great news for brands. but how can brands also connect with those audiences around that content and This is where um, we start to think about innovation and offering something new, which is where nostalgia and and newness come together in nostalgia so it 's the merging of technology and kind of nostalgic entertainment. Um, And it's a real kind of delicious little sweet spot for brands when you can offer both. And we're talking here about things like AR experiences um, that you can kind of uh, tap into alongside the kind of much-loved IP and um, that people are already engaging with. And they're brilliant examples of that. Even recently, so the Pizza Hut example where they introduced a limited edition box on a QR code, um, which customers could then scan and they could play an AR version of um, Pac-Man, if you remember Pac-Man. and then you know, um, players can then kind of upload their scores and share it on Twitter, uh, and um, make it more gamifiable that way. Um, and, and I don't know, but you saw yesterday, um, Campaign published um, the top five media ideas and the Channel Four idea where they um, brought back smash hits for the um, for the third season of Derry Girls. Uh, but again. A twist. So you know, um, the campaign was perfectly adapted for TikTok. They had Spotify, had a special kind of mixed play, um, mixtape playlist. Um, so it, it's a it's a blend of the new and the old that makes it so exciting. And even in live experiences, uh, I don't know if anyone's seen that ABBA, the avatars, but again, that mix of innovation with um, something nostalgic is really powerful.
0: Okay. Thanks for that. What's the next uh, future trend that the market needs to be aware of?
3: Okay, so um, the trend I'm probably most excited about um, this year is try it on commerce. And it, this is really where, you know, technology, media and content really collide. And again, thanks to AR technology, customers no longer need to kind of visit physical stores to find you know items of clothing um, whether it fits or not. Users can seamlessly try on clothes, they can try on makeup, they can even match their desired furniture objects to their bedrooms and kitchens. And I mean, personally, you know, not having to queue or a changing room or the faff of trying on clothes or being disappointed because I can't try an item of clothing in the right size or the right colorway is truly amazing. It's such a fantastic innovation for consumers. But what I love about this trend is that it's not just about consumers winning. It's also, you know, it's a win for brands too. You know, you get the high level of returns that brands often get and poor customer service, that um, potential in, in, a, in a retail environment, that's all very, very costly. Mm. And we know people are buying two or maybe three items of clothing mm. in different sizing and then sending them back, you know, and, there's so much wastage, so which is not good for business, and it's certainly not good for the planet. So uh, I'm very excited by it. And if Gertner is to believe then in their most recent report, um, 20% of retailers such as IKEA, Nike, and L'Oreal are already putting their arms around AR innovation and, and really baking that into their business models. And another 32% are planning to implement AR in the process of their business planning uh, for 2023. And it doesn't even, even have to just be, um, let's say, mainstream um, brands. It's also the luxury end of the market, which you might be really quite surprised by. So, you know, luxury watches um, and sunglasses. Um, you can see there are many, many opportunities for brands to kind of get involved in this space so beyond the kind of FMCG mass market, um, which is really exciting.
0: I mean, it sounds sounds really fascinating and it sounds a little bit gloomy for the high street. Uh, Maybe some retailers might go completely digital.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I think it it actually offers a massive opportunity for retailers to create proper brand experiences in in the physical spaces that they own Mm. and and for customers Mm. to spend much more time being immersive, really enjoying the brand experience and seeing the products in the real world, but not having all the fat about you know with with sending products back or um having to queue in changing rooms it takes all the negativity out of shopping out of it
0: yeah it, it sounds really interesting as well in terms of AR, uh, i mean do you, do you foresee a future for example where people do their shopping with their sort of AR quest goggles or what have you
3: yeah i don't think you even need you, you don't even need such um high kit to do that these days you know um our phones are sophisticated enough to um, be able to create really rich, immersive experiences without you needing special glasses or anything like that.
0: Okay, fantastic. So we've had new nostalgia and tried-on commerce. Thanks so much for that, Vera. Dan, what are your two trends?
2: Hi, Arvind. Um, the two I wanted to talk about today are AVOD ETS VOD, and then also about how social algorithms are changing social media and beyond. Um, so the first one is... AVOD eats SVOD, which is really all about how the time we spend watching ad-funded video on demand is going to start overtaking the time we spend watching subscription video on demand. When we think about video on demand, we sort of naturally think about Netflix because um, they're the most high profile. They have the most high high profile shows. They probably have the highest budgets of anybody. Um, But actually, when we look at what consumers are watching or when we look at how they're spending their time, more and more people are watching the ad-funded services. So in the UK, that's things like broadcaster video on demand like all four, but also it's um ad-funded ad-funded channels, um, you know, sort of less less high profile ad-funded channels. But also I think within this we can include people watching YouTube on their connected TVs because there's now advertising that you can specifically say when you're buying onto YouTube This advert should only be played to people watching on their connected TVs. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And um, obviously, what we've also seen in the last month or so is Netflix starting to take advertising. Over the next month, Disney will start to take advertising, again, following the same model as Netflix, where you don't get it for free, but you get a lower price subscription if you're willing to see advertising with your programming as well. So I think that's a fascinating thing. And I think this shows a couple of things. One is consumers feeling very pressurized by costs. So consumers switching to a lower cost version of something, but then also businesses increasingly looking for other revenue streams. So not necessarily wanting to be solely reliant on um, subscription at a time when we're entering an economic downturn and you know it's very easy to cancel mm. services like Netflix.
0: Yeah, I have a couple of questions actually on that. I think it's a really fascinating space, actually. Now, Netflix, I know it's just sort of rolled out or launched in the U.S., hasn't really done ad-funded ad tier for a long time. Do you do you sort of have any insights in terms of how that adoption rate is going? Are a lot of users actually saying, actually, we'll go for the cheaper adverta- option and um, and look at advertising? Or are a lot of users actually not even noticing that they've got that and and just continuing?
2: So it seems to be quite slow, so far but it is growing all the time what people are saying is that um you know it's it's quite difficult to find big audiences at the moment simply because they've only been offering it for a month or so but it does seem to be growing all the time but then also netflix has some quite strict rules around things like um you know how many ads for the same brand can appear within the same program. So effectively okay. frequency capping rules yep. and also rules around what sort of categories of product are allowed to appear within what sort of categories of programming. So I think it's relatively difficult for brands to get all that much reach at the moment, but this is something which is growing all the time. And I think you could also say that the brands who are early on the platform are learning about how things work. Um, but what we Expect is you know we we do expect significant numbers at some point in the future.
3: Dan, could I ask a question? And um, do you think um, the two pounds difference between the um, ad-funded model and the the um, ad-free funded model? Do you think that that's enough of a price difference for people to opt for the advertising-funded model? Because it feels like you know it's it's like forty p a week difference.
2: So. It's not a massive reduction, but I think what's also likely to happen is that people who don't currently have Netflix or people who essentially, you know, borrow in inverted commas a subscription from one of their friends um, might now think, well, actually, for it's a bit less than a fiver a month now. Um, I could do this. I can watch Harry and Meghan. I can watch Wednesday. I can watch all these shows that people are talking about. I don't need, you know, I can do it sort of without Without wondering if anybody else is going to be kicking me off the service, um, because you know I'm I'm sort of using somebody else's subscription. So I think it's going to attract new subscriber subscriber households, particularly over Christmas. Um, And I think also you're probably going to get to a point where you could have three services for the price of two. So then at that point you almost treat it like terrestrial TV, where You don't have to worry about what channel something is on or what service something is on. You've got all the three main ones and you're just flicking between the different ones to watch the different shows you want on each. So, yeah, I mean, but then obviously also for clients in areas like luxury, they're not necessarily interested in the sort of people who are looking to save, you know, two to three pounds a month. But what I think is also going to be happening is that as people like Netflix become more open to these sorts of commercial conversations, you're going to be seeing more things like product placement, but also you're going to see more things like brand funded programming, which I think at the moment, Netflix has, has sort of fought shy of, but you do get on things like Amazon Prime Video.
0: It's worth mentioning, I think the ad loads for Netflix, it's, it's much lower than normal TV, isn't it? It's four minutes per hour or something. Is that, is that
2: correct? I think it's four to five minutes per hour. Yeah. So I think you, so, and this is the strange thing as well, in that it would be um, really good if for agencies, they'd allowed us to, you know, almost have like an advertising mode so that we could experience it. Because to be quite honest, I don't want to switch to an ad funded subscription and have a month of watching the ad funded version just in case I don't like it. But actually, it would be really interesting to see practically how it works, whether there's any buffering on the advertising, the sort of experience and things. I think what's also what's also going to be really exciting going forward. We know the sort of interactivity that Netflix is capable of, um, with things like you know with shows like Bandersnatch, and there was a, there was a cartoon one earlier this year where you could um, you know decide what the cartoon character did at different points. Um, I think what's also going to be really interesting is how they bring interactivity into the advertising. So potentially clickable with the TV remote and potentially even things like shoppable.
0: It's worth mentioning as well that you know, the broadcasters in the UK, ITV and Channel 4, are making ever more sophisticated plays in, in that sort of AVOD space. You've got ITVX that's just rolled out. Just, just interested to hear your thoughts in terms of why an advertiser would pay a premium to go on Netflix, for example versus you know paying something probably slightly less um or more more cost effective for itbx or or an all four
2: i think it's about association with particular programs and and you know the the particular sort of halo that netflix has but i don't necessarily know that it's worth paying a great deal more i think the thing is with netflix you have the brand so you have um you know, the, the, the sort of the premium element that that brings. But then also you have some very unique programming. So they've got, um I haven't seen, you know, the it, it's almost like instead of, you know, the Christmas radio times, what's going to be on Christmas Day or something, what's Netflix dropping in the week before Christmas? Because they're dropping a new Emily in Paris. They're dropping, I think Matilda's dropping on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. I think um the Knives Out sequel is dropping a couple of days before that. So effectively you're paying to get people, You're paying to get access to people all clustering around watching these shows as a sort of family experience. So I think that's what you're paying for. But then obviously the onus is on Netflix to keep on producing these amazing hits, which we associate them with. I
3: mean, if you look at the most recent Barb data, I mean, most people are still watching the broadcasters, the linear broadcasters, um, um, then watching more minutes per day than they are um, the sford players, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is an exciting, it is an exciting time um, for appetizers because suddenly the choice is so much greater.
2: But again, with the Barb figures, that's an average across all adults. I think if you it looked is. at the Barb yeah. numbers, it is. if you looked at the Barb numbers for eighteen to twenty fours or eighteen to thirty fives or something like that, then you would see, you know, a great deal more streaming. And when we talk to people like Samsung who have access to a huge amount of their own data um, from people who watch Samsung smart TVs, you know, they, they say that, you know, admittedly, again, it's by sample, because if you've bought a, you know, a very sophisticated smart TV, then you're going to be using it an awful lot. But they say that on their, on their devices, they see very few people watching linear TV, probably with the exception of things like live sport and stuff like that.
0: Yep. Okay. Fantastic. So a is eating s um, according to Dan. Dan, what's your other trend?
2: So the second one is really all about how social media algorithms are changing how social media works and potentially changing more things as well. So I think you could argue that social media has changed more in the last six months than it has in the previous six years, because you've got uh, platforms like Instagram, platforms like Twitter, finally coming to terms with the changes that TikTok has brought to the industry and the sorts of engagement that TikTok is producing, and changing their algorithms so that you're now not only seeing content from the people that you follow, and in Twitter's case, content retweeted by people you follow, but you're seeing content from you know you're you're seeing the best of the whole platform within your feed. Um so when I'm on Instagram these days, you know, it's almost like half the posts I see are from accounts I don't actually follow, but based on either things that my friends have interacted with or things that are just going viral on the platform as it is. So obviously things always used to go viral on these platforms, but it now, you know, following the TikTok model, it's much easier for low follower account accounts to actually create something which then gets seen by an awful lot of people. So what what's really happened within social media, as a result, as I say, of, of the changes that TikTok brought in, is that um, it's now much more about creativity. It's much more about creating something which is sort of relevant to people at that time, whether it you know that day or that week, um, or you know memes around the news or things like that, rather than we've spent the last X years building up a Following of this many um, tens or hundreds of thousands, and whatever we put out is going to be seen by most of those people. So basically, the the, the position has completely or or th- there's been a sort of quite a fundamental change in how um, the platforms choose to show people choose choose to show things to people based on how they're weighting their algorithms, what sort of cues they're looking at, um, and so we think you know. If you're somebody putting stuff up onto the social media platforms, you need to be very aware of this. But also, if you're advertising on these platforms, you also need to be aware of it because although your advertising is going to get shown to people, because you know that's the contract in the advertising, the point is it's very easy to to scroll up or to tap to 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 move on to the next story. Um, so essentially, you're you're competing with the best of the best on these platforms, and people really need to think more about the creativity and the relevance. And, you know, rather than being able to think about we have this many followers, therefore what we're doing should get a lot of traction.
0: So instead of it just being a you know, pay and spray type approach, there has to some real thought about relevancy and, and that sort of stuff for brands.
2: Well absolutely. I mean that you know obviously they always did, but it's it's becoming much more crucial now because I think also the other thing you have to take into account is we're in a in an age of almost infinite content. So in the same way, I mean, you know, during lockdown, people would make jokes about I've seen all of Netflix and things like that, which is clearly impossible. But it's literally impossible to watch all of TikTok. It's literally impossible to watch, you know, all of YouTube shorts or Instagram reels or or whatever. So the point is that when there is infinite content, what brands are putting out, whether organically or paying to, to advertise with, has to really compete with the best of the best.
0: Okay, fantastic. Thanks for that, Dan. Casey, what are your trends?
1: Okay, um, so we have two. The first one is called um, I Will Survive and it's around like the permacrisis and human adaptability. A lot of what you opened up um, the podcast with. And then the second one is called I'm a Believer. And it's really asking the question of what's next for loyalty. So I'll just dive into the first one. And I want to kind of sit up for a moment on the waves of crisis that have just been hitting us, you know, day after day, something new is coming in. And, you know, for some, crisis isn't new. I mean, you know, these are global trends. Some people have crisis more often than others. But it is new for a lot of people, and it's extremely destabilizing. Um, you know, people's response to crisis, you know, eventually means that we do adapt, right? Like if you look throughout human history, um, there's been some really rough times, but, you know, we always come out of these times, you know, stronger, different, um, you know, but we eventually adapt and come out. And so, you know, if I were were to talk about, you know, the the crises that we're seeing at the moment, you would think, and to use social media terms, it's a bit of a doom scroll, in reality at the moment. Um, if you think about, you know, the war um, in Ukraine, or you think about the um, inflation you, to the point where, you know, workers' incomes are not rising as fast as energy costs, and, and it's causing a lot of rife within, um, you know, between workers and the organizations they work for. Um, you know, we're still worried about climate change, um, you know the effects of climate change are not going away, and you know people can just look around their day to day and say, "Man, it is a lot hotter today than it's ever been," or you know the wildfires are displacing people, or flash floods, and you you just wonder, you know, existentially what's going on, you know, with with the world around us, the environment around us, but this this anxiety and this you know crisis is really. Moving online as well, and and you know, just to kind of comment on you know you know our our position on, on the algorithm is there's algorithm there's algorithmic angst. I can't say the word properly, so <laughs> go with me. But but I think people are actually really questioning whether the feed is truly based on what they want out of these platforms. So I do recognize, and I did hear Dan mention this earlier that the the algorithms are getting really good at content, but I don't know that people are truly trusting that anymore and don't know if what they're seeing is, is a force of a machine behind it, feeding them what they think the machine likes. Um, you know, there's trust in the, in the internet and then the news for, for sure has just fallen sharply. Um, 63% in 2017 to 51% um, in 2022. So there's some kind of, I would say crises happening on with our online experiences. Um, you know, and people will increasingly approach brands with caution, not hesitating to shut down relationships with any brand they perceive to be having a disappointing or a betraying effect on them. So if you look at this whole thing, yeah, you know, those those are the threat responses, but I do have a bit of kind of good news to kind of pull us out of this this kind of rot is that you think about, you know, when the energy's typically running low, where do people turn for those kind of rays of light and Obviously, there's a lot that happens with music and culture, music and art. Um, and what I see and what we see is that we're seeing the brewing of a of a situation where art and culture might be the anecdote to to some of, of the negativity we're seeing out there. And, and you just if even if you look back to the 1930s with the Great Depression in the US, um, Hollywood entered a golden age. You know, the arts and music have always been just used as an escape for people from hardships. And I do think as brands, we need to think about what our role is, whether we sit there and we're sympathetic with people and having empathy and trying to meet them where they are, or do we offer them the escape? And I, that's where I'm thinking about Vera's nostalgia and stuff like that. There's a bit of, of comfort in some of these things. So like it or not, you know, we have a bunch of, of really interesting things happening, but we just need to understand that this isn't just meeting people where they are, you know, from one moment to another, it's understanding the threat response that people are in and and really looking to where how it can channel into something positive because I do think that people are looking for the good. So that's our first trend.
3: I couldn't agree more with that, Katie. I thought um, we we found very similar um, findings in some work that we've done here as well. We do a kind of cost of living tracker and, you know, the 81% of people are, Are changing um, how they spend their money. And there's lots of evidence that there's kind of self imposed financial lockdowns going on. um, And people are looking for tangible help from brands and organizations. And we, you know, supermarkets seem to be offering really tangible help. Uh, Martin Lewis is always called out as someone who's offering tangible help. But I do wonder how, in such kind of undeniable anxious times, some brands can respond to the crisis you know if you're a you know if you're a brand that um, is a you know nail polish remover or an ice cream brand you know saying we are here for you in in financial times in difficult times is is um doesn't feel relevant and i guess you know that that's where the alternative is actually brands could turn to entertainment and showbiz in the way that you've just mentioned you're right you know in the past, Hollywood has done that brilliantly, um, as did Laurel and Hardy in World War One. They did the same thing, and and if we look back, even I know um, Dan was talking about the financial crisis in um, 20, in two thousand and eight. And if we remember the kind of advertising the, what brands were doing at that time, we had T-Mobile doing flash mobbing. Um, we had Budweiser who was kind of shouting, "What's up to their What's up to their friends?" Down the phone, we had Cadbury's being silly with wiggly eyebrows. I mean, there is a role for brands just to be entertaining and lift the spirit of the nation. And you know, media hasn't been in a better position to be able to do that, I think, than it is now.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to just uh, disagree with you on one point, Vera. I think ice cream is the perfect response to a crisis, so I do see a role there. <laughs> I, I'm actually, I'm at, I'm actually interested though, uh, Katie, just to pick up in terms of how do brands adapt, you know, do brands lean into this um, or do they not, um, you know, are they they there to entertain and distract consumers or are they there to help consumers during difficult times? And, And how do you sort of see messaging and creative evolving given that we seem to be in this constant cycle of crises?
1: I mean, I do think for a brand, it goes back to what's, what, what is your utility to your customer in general? I mean, You know, do I need a chewing gum type of brand to be helping me, you know, with my winter bills? I don't know that they have the permission space to be doing that. So, really, do ground everything in the utility that you offer to your customers to begin with, and then play with that um you know i do think that where your brand and the cost of things if it's really hitting people in the pocket maybe go a bit more empathetic and sympathetic but then if you're entertainment or if you're if you're whatever your personality is you know from the creative side do lift the do lift it where you can i mean people love comedy people love entertainment people love to escape um you know it doesn't have to mean that the whole whole of brands and I, I would hope that we don't do this is I don't want everyone showing sympathy at the same time because that feels inauthentic. Um, so it's just, it's just kind of being creative understanding that just because the world's hard, doesn't mean brands have to be made, you know, amplify that. I think people it's hard enough. What is the brand's role? And that should really be kind of the creative brief that we start with at the moment is what should we be doing? in this space? And should we be leaning in to where they are or helping them escape?
0: Okay. So context and relevancy seems to be a common thread with, with some of these. Sorry, Dan, you wanted to...
2: Yeah, I was, was going to say, I think something else that brands can do, which, which we're starting to see already is brands really showing people how to live sustainably. So things like recipe hacks, using their products and things like that, and showing people that if you do this, you will you know, you'll waste less and therefore you'll save money by doing things like that. So I think there's lots of scope for people to be involved in those sorts of things.
0: Fantastic. Right. Let's move on to our sixth and final future trend. What is it, Katie?
1: Sure. So um, we call it I'm a Believer. And I don't know if you know about Accenture Song, but we do try and use song titles for a lot of our uh, trends, um, mainly because when I'm writing them, it it just gives you a fun source of inspiration. Um, But what this really is around is what's next for loyalty. And I think that if we want to ground it, it's, it's, you know, a sense of belonging is one of humanity's most basic needs. Um, the feeling of being happy or comfortable as part of a group. And in recent years, people have found that belonging through interest groups on digital channels and some um, and some of those hobbies that they've found during the pandemic have turned into more permanent places in their lives. Um, and technologies are now building on that shift in behavior and enabling new waves of community-first product-later models um, that boost customers' connections with the brands. Um, so... The what I mean, if you were to really kind of think through this, think about, and I'm going to go with the pandemic for example. But, but the when we were forced to be apart and isolated at home, we first turned to hobbies, and then we learned we had to go and find communities of people who were interested in the same hobbies that we were to learn from them. These thrived on places like Reddit and discord and Twitch where people could find their tribe. And that's anything from um, macro level purposes, like human rights or, or um, you know, climate change, if you're passionate about that, but all the way down to like micro things, like, you know, you know the, the best cup of coffee in the world or whatever, there's a group for everything. But what we're seeing emerges, the tokenization of, of things where web three is starting to come in and tokenizing access to, to content for brands um, or even just exclusivity, that whole status thing that's actually leaning into this, this community driven platform stuff as well. And so what that's doing is opening up new opportunities for growth for brands because they're able to monetize, you know, niche assets that they've had in the past. Like, you know, access to to early designs of a product launch or you know even ab testing or something like that they're able to monetize that from their super fans and so brands are starting to lean into these super fans to ask you know how can they get you know deeper relationships with these customers but they're token gating it so they're turning them into reven- revenue streams so when we ask this, and you can boil this back up, and there's a lot more in our trend, But the thing is, is this makes us wonder, like, what's next for loyalty? Because loyalty for a lot of brands is a program. But this is actually transitioning it more towards what's that relationship? And is there a step beyond that around participation? That is a new you know, growth driver for companies. And we do think that Web3 and, and communities are absolutely where we're seeing this happening. And we're seeing early cases where, um, where growth is actually happening through some of this new technology. So it's, it's really asking what's next for loyalty. And we do. We think it's, um, it's participation.
0: It's a really interesting point in terms of what's next for loyalty. Do you think in terms of data and privacy regulation and how it seems to be tightening in, in, in a lot of regions, do you think that'll have an impact in terms of what brands can do with that relationship, how far they can take it?
1: I mean, I do think so. One of our other trends that I'm not really going into much detail on is is the big shift of tokenization of our identity. Um, and and that's happening as well. I mean, Web3, for you know a lot of the hype cycles that we hear about, The fundamentals of what it's changing underneath is, is very transformative. And when you think about tokenizing your identity, this is your, your, any of your data, your address, um, or, you know, the currencies or the assets that you have actually just bringing the concept of digital ownership into the internet and blending that with your life, your real life, the real world life and your digital life. Owning my data. Is, is pretty transformative. So when you talk about privacy, I get more control. I get more um, say, and that actually changes the relationship with the, between the brand and the customer too. So when I log on and, and set up an account with you, you know, I, there's a likelihood that there's a, a certain amount of data that I can't understand in the terms and conditions or the cookies when I click it that you then take and then you do something with and I have no transparency or no control over that. That will shift when you tokenize our identities. Um, and it's they they onboard to, brands on board to you versus you onboarding to them. So I do think that there's a big shift with tokenization happening across the board, when you think about it at the identity level, but then it, it absolutely trickles down into um, the relationships and advertising between brands and the customer.
0: Thank you so much, Katie. And also thank you to Vera and Dan for sharing your future trends with us today. Also, a big thank you to our producer, Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio. If you'd like to learn more about trends, forecasts and everything else that's going on at Adland, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Now, this is our final campaign podcast of the year. Um, I'd just like to, on behalf of the team, thank you for your support throughout 2022 and wish you all a lovely festive season. Uh, We'll be back in January. And until then, on behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.